This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking. This is Encounter 201. Will the real O.H. Krill please stand up? We're going to be a little closer to the present in this installment, but I like to tell people that uh, we really do have to categorize the 1980s as history at this point, no matter how old that may make us feel. During the 1980s, a number of documents and statements began to circulate on bulletin board systems. For those of you who might not be old enough to remember these, BBSs were computer networks to which people could dial in via a modem and send messages, play text-based games, or participate on discussion boards. This wasn't the internet, but BBS discussion boards were, in many ways, the precursor to discussion groups on Usenet and down the line to the message boards on the internet that exist today. It was social networking before some marketing clone came up with the term social networking, and there were several prominent BBSs that focused on UFO issues. Today, we're going to look at what I think is one of the most significant documents to come out of this period. It was called A Situation Report on Our Acquisition of Advanced Technology and Interaction with Alien Cultures. It was dated January 1988 and attributed to one O.H. Krill. During the 1980s, three things emerged in the flying saucer subculture that would shape it for decades to come and that play a role in today's story. One was the revelation of a collection of documents, thought now to be at least partially forged by most observers, discussing a group called MJ-12, a think tank of prominent early Cold War scientists, intelligence, and defense officials who supposedly had responsibility for managing American contact with extraterrestrial races. Another was the abduction phenomenon, which gave rise to a popular image of alien contact that was often violent and invasive, an image very much at odds with the brotherly experiences that the contactees had described. The third was a disinformation campaign waged against a New Mexico businessman named Paul Benowitz. According to those such as Greg Bishop in his book Project Beta, who have thoroughly investigated this fascinating and disturbing case, Benowitz had seen glimpses of what he thought to possibly be a UFO, but were probably highly classified Air Force weapons tests. In order to guide Benowitz away from looking more closely at what he had seen, agents of the Air Force Office of Special Investigations guided him toward a more bizarre explanation. They received assistance from Bill Moore, a UFO investigator who, he says, was promised inside info on the saucers in exchange for assisting with intelligence-gathering operations on UFO organizations and researchers. In a 1992 interview, Moore outlined the elements of the disinformation that Benowitz had encountered. It included, quote, the whole story of government alien involvement, treaties with aliens, underground bases, a plot to take over the planet, implants, two different races of aliens, one hostile and one friendly, etc., end quote. A fabrication of counterintelligence people for the purpose of discrediting Benowitz were the people who had been behind this entire operation. Those ideas would be developed and solidified at UFO conferences and increasingly on bulletin board systems. Uh, These were computer networks, as I discussed earlier. Boards such as Paranet Information Services and Illuminet, uh, which would morph into the publisher Illuminet Press in the 1990s, hosted a lot of influential documents, and the core ideas in some of them could be traced back to Benowitz and the disinformation that had been fed to him. 
One of the earliest and most influential of these documents was a 1987 statement by John Lear. John Lear, trading on his reputation as an award-winning pilot and son of Learjet inventor William Lear, issued a statement on December 29, 1987. Uploaded initially to the Paranet BBS, it has circulated on the internet ever since. While acknowledging that, quote, John is who he says he is and has numerous contacts in sensitive positions that could conceivably allow him access to information of this type, end quote, Paranet's owners presented the information to encourage debate rather than expressing agreement with its contents. In the statement, Lear revealed the truth about the MJ-12 group, and it was more frightening and important than the mere study of UFOs and the maintenance of secrecy about extraterrestrial visitations. MJ-12 had been established by President Truman, Lear wrote, in the aftermath of the Roswell incident as sort of a diplomatic liaison between the United States and an alien nation. During the period of 1969 to 1971, MJ-12, representing the U.S. government, made a deal with these creatures. The deal was that in exchange for technology that they would provide to us, we agreed to ignore the abductions that were going on and suppress information on cattle mutilations. The extraterrestrial biological entities assured MJ-12 that the abductions, usually lasting about two hours, were merely the ongoing monitoring of developing civilizations. In fact, the purposes for the abductions turned out to be, one, the insertion of a three-millimeter spherical device through the nasal cavity of the abductee into the brain. The device is used for biological monitoring, tracking, and control of the abductee. Two, implementation of post-hypnotic suggestion to carry out a specific activity during a specific time period, the actuation of which will occur within the next two to five years. Three, termination of some people so that they could be function as living sources for biological material and substances. Four, termination of individuals who represent a threat to the continuation of their activity. Five, to affect genetic engineering experiments. Six, impregnation of human females and early termination of pregnancies to secure the crossbred infant. The U.S. government was not initially aware of the far-reaching consequences of their deal. They were led to believe that the abductions were essentially benign. A well-planned invasion of Earth for its resources and benefits would not begin with mass landings of ray-gun-equipped aliens. A properly planned and executed invasion by a civilization thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of years in advance of us would most likely be complete before even a handful of people, say 12, realized what was happening. No fuss, no muss. The best advice I can give you is this. Next time you see a flying saucer and are awed by its obvious display of technology and gorgeous lights of pure color, run like hell. Lear goes on to tie this new MJ-12 alien alliance to the use of secret bases such as Area 51 and the alleged base near Dulce, New Mexico, including a full-blown battle at Dulce between humans and the aliens at the underground Dulce base after the humans had discovered the truth about what the aliens were up to, that they were abducting many more people than they reported. The story of the Dulce base was, of course, part of the information supplied to Paul Benowitz, who, according to Moore, quote, was meeting with everybody who was anybody and telling that story to anyone who would listen, end quote, including John Lear and others. It was, Moore claimed, the kind of paranoia that they wanted to hear. In the years that followed, other documents of dubious prominence flooded the UFO scene. 
The views that Lear expressed were bolstered by those of William Cooper. In late 1988, Cooper began posting several files to UFO-oriented bulletin board systems. The first one, Top Secret Stroke Magic Executive Correspondence Briefing Session, consisted of explanations of various secret projects with official-looking cryptonyms that covered the ongoing relationship between elements of the U.S. government and the alien beings with whom they had established contact. The project summaries were filled with important-sounding terminology and this weird, clipped, concise language that reinforced the notion that it came from an official source, such as the following description of Project Sigma. T.S. Stroke Oricon, Project Sigma, pro-word Aquarius, originally established as part of Project Sign in 1954, became a separate project in 1976. Its mission was to establish communication with aliens. This project met with positive success. In 1959, the United States established primitive communication with the aliens. On April 25, 1964, a U.S. Air Force intelligence officer met with aliens at Holloman Air Force Base, New Mexico. The contact lasted for approximately three hours. After several attempted methods of communicating, the intelligence officer managed to exchange basic information with the aliens. See Attachment 7. This project is continuing at a site in New Mexico. Basically, Lear's 1987 statement had opened the floodgates and emboldened others who claimed they had access to similar secret information. This new information, in turn, seemed to reinforce Lear's claims, as well as informing the ongoing debate about the MJ-12 papers and quiet talk about underground bases in the American West that had been circulating since the early 1980s and often traceable back to Paul Benowitz in some way. Shortly after the release of the Top Secret Magic Briefing document, uh, Cooper issued his uh, an essay basically titled Reasons for Going Public, in which he introduced himself as a Navy veteran who was, in the early 1970s, attached to the staff of the Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Fleet and responsible for intelligence briefings. While there, Cooper claims he encountered material from a variety of sources which corroborated other UFO-related materials that was emerging into the public domain. I saw and read Grudge Blue Book Report number 13. I saw and read the Majesty document which contained the Aquarius information. I was present at a briefing where much more information was discussed and some of it has become cloudy over the years, but has come back to me when I saw information on that subject. About 50% of the information comes from my sources who will remain unnamed. About 60% of the information is backed up by research and information available to you. All, however, the information is not generally shared. It is out there in various places and on various boards. Due to the potential monetary value of the information, I believe that that it probably never will be shared. I'm no math genius, but I'm pretty sure 50% plus 60% totals 110%, so not sure of the math there, Bill. Basically, Cooper, uh, a lot of what he did was co-opting work and ideas that already existed, while claiming that he had specific, special, additional knowledge from his top-secret past that corroborated the stuff he agreed with, and then he'd provide some extra details that nobody else had because nobody else had his level of access, except he probably didn't have that level of access. 
Cooper would continue to produce lengthy documents and post them, as well as distributing other material, which claimed mysterious figures had, which he claimed mysterious figures had uploaded to his own bulletin board system. Often, he'd explain that while not all of the material in the documents could be corroborated, much of it verified what he had learned in the 1970s. One such piece of material was the so-called O.H. Krill document. The saga of O.H. Krill and the document which bears his, her, its name is one of the most complex to emerge in the 1980s. Bill Cooper uploaded the document to several networks and prefaced it with the following observation, which includes a confusing and largely unnecessary sort of homophone-based explanation for what the name O.H. The Krill papers seemingly came out of nowhere and have stirred up a small hornet's nest of speculation. Who is O.H. Krill? Is the information correct? Are parts of the text correct and parts incorrect? Where did the papers come from? I'm going to answer some of those questions. When the aliens landed at Holloman Air Force Base in the 60s, a basic communication was established between the United States government and the aliens. During this communication, a basic agreement was reached, which was the precursor for the formal treaty and the diplomatic relations which followed. The aliens left a hostage with the United States as a pledge of fulfillment of their part of the agreement. The name of that hostage was Curl, spelled K-R-L-L. I will refer to him as Curl, as this was the spelling used in the Majesty documents which I saw. This hostage furnished much information about the aliens. In order that this information could be circulated and discussed among the military and scientific community, a pseudonym was coined as a code for this information, which had originated from Krill. This code name for Krill was Krill. The initials OH stand for Original Hostage. All information thus circulated from the source Krill was said to be authored by O.H. Krill. The information was usually of scientific or seemingly occult nature and was sanitized so that no inference to an alien race or culture occurred. This was done so that feedback and recommendations could be gleaned from those experts who were not privy to the secret. The Krill papers must have been authored by someone in the government or military who knew this information, because the author O.H. Krill is an obvious takeoff on Krill. I do not know who the author is, and I do not know if the material is directly from Krill or not, but it is apparent that whoever O.H. Krill it may be, he did know the story of Krill. In my opinion, the origin of the material will most probably be the object of much speculation. I cannot comment on the material which covers information that I have not seen before. However, I can and will say that much of it is correct and agrees with the information that I have already released. The Krill document tied together many strands of UFO and conspiracy belief, including MJ-12, the Roswell crash, alien abductions, black helicopters, livestock and cattle mutilations, and the men in black. It described a multi-layered conspiracy, more devious and convoluted than UFO researchers may have suspected. The original contact between the government and the extraterrestrial biological entities, who are gray in color and about 3.5 to 4.5 feet high, hereafter referred to as the grays, was achieved between 1947 and 1951. We knew that the grays were instrumental in performing the mutilations of animals and some humans, and that they were using the glandular substances derived from these materials for food absorbed through the skin and to clone more grays in their underground laboratories. 
The government was also aware that the Greys performed some of the inductions to secure genetic materials. The government insisted that the Greys provide them with a list that would be presented to the National Security Council. Through all this, the government thought that the Greys were basically tolerable creatures, although a bit distasteful. They presumed at the time that it was not unreasonable to assume that the public would and could get used to their presence. Between 1968 and 1969, a plan was formulated to make the public aware of their existence over the succeeding 20 years. This time period would culminate with a series of documentaries that would explain the history and intentions of the Greys. The Greys assured us that the real purpose of the abductions was for monitoring of our civilization, and when we learned that the abductions were a lot more frequent and insidious than we were led to believe, the government became concerned. Their concern was also based on additional information regarding the purposes for the abductions. 1. Insertion of a 3mm spherical biological monitoring device through the nasal cavity into the brain of the abductee. 2. Implementing subliminal post-hypnotic suggestions that would compel the abductee to perform some specific act at a time to be within the next 2 to 5 years. 3. Genetic crossbreeding between the greys and human beings. 4. Insertion of discoid monitoring devices into the muscle tissue of the abductees. Presence of these has been verified by x-ray. By the time we had found out the truth about the intentions of the greys, they intend to stay here and stay in control of our world. It was too late. We had already sold out humanity. If you were thinking that you've heard this story before, it's because you have. A few minutes ago. The document's similarities to previously released material, such as John Lear's statement, could be attributed to the fact that they shared the same author, John Lear. By the early 1990s, it was widely accepted in the UFO community that Lear, along with UFO researcher John Grace, had put together the Krill document as a summary of what he and Grace saw as the reality of the situation vis-a-vis the alien presence on Earth. That's what Lear says anyway. Later on, Lear would say, it wasn't a hoax, it wasn't a scam, this was honestly what we thought was going on. Others have said this was a scam designed to sort of catch people like Bill Cooper. Because Bill Cooper said it was real. You can't see it, but I'm using sarcastic air quotes. Not only that, Cooper said that he had learned the same things when he was in the Navy. His endorsement of the Krill document would eventually be one of the factors which would lead to his exit from the UFO field. Cooper, by claiming he had seen similar information decades before, fell into a trap. And that trap was the one that everybody sort of suspected that he would fall into. That whatever new exciting stuff that came out, he would sort of glom onto and say, well, yeah, I knew that first. I just didn't tell anybody, you know? Um, and, And people knew he would do that, and they caught him. As a writer uh, calling him or herself I Am Fed Up wrote in an attack on Cooper entitled Behold a Stale Horse, which was a takeoff on the name of Cooper's book, which was Behold a Pale Horse, uh, Cooper did not take the news of the hoax well. Mr. Cooper, as usual, made an ass of himself in an interview discussing the subject of O.H. Krill. One evening, during a television interview of Mr. Cooper, Lear overheard Cooper use the O.H. Krill name and mentioned the fact that he had first seen this document while working for the Office of Naval Intelligence in the early 1970s. As Mr. Lear has related, he immediately pulled Cooper aside and quietly told him, Bill, O.H. Krill is a joke. 
Cooper instantly unleashed his hostile self and in his usual denial of reality replied that Lear was mistaken, insisting that he had seen it in 1972 while working for naval intelligence. Perhaps not coincidentally, Cooper segued out of the UFO field soon after, denouncing its major players and claiming that he had seen them listed as disinformation agents in those fabled 1972 briefing documents, which always conveniently showed up and included whatever information Cooper needed to make a point in an argument on an online message board. Cooper would later say that that he had been disinformed, that he had fallen for the UFO hoax, and that the UFO hoax, the UFO movement, was really just a plan by the New World Order and other conspiracy theory bugaboos to trick the American people and everybody else into forming a world government to fight the evil aliens, at which point all of our rights would be stripped away and anybody opposing them would be sent to concentration camps. Uh, Cooper would go on to um, to present himself as a very big deal within the militia movement of the 1990s. Uh, at some point, we'll probably do a, a sort of long-form overview of Cooper in the UFO field, because there's some some other stuff that's... Uh, that's out there that's that's pretty fun. Lear and others who had promoted the paranoid conspiracies of an alien government uh, collusion uh, faded from the scene as well, but their work lived on, a sort of perpetual motion machine of paranoia. You can see elements of it in uh, The X-Files, Dark Skies, and other paranoid and paranormal media of the 1990s. Lear would actually return... Um, in some appearances on Art Bell's Coast to Coast AM in 2003 and 2004, and from there on established an online presence on message boards and as a radio and podcast guest, where he was able to be an elder statesman of the strange, sinister 1980s, when your saucer life could end up with you on a metal table in an underground base having a three-millimeter spherical object shoved up your nose. If you're interested in more information and insight about the world of shadow government misinformation and its connection to the saucer scene, I really recommend checking out Project Beta by Greg Bishop and Mirage Men by Mark Pilkington, as well as the documentary of the same name. Also, uh, Jacques Vallée's book Revelations is really interesting on this subject as well and has a good interview between uh, Vallée and, uh, and and Bill Cooper about uh, about his secret information that he learned. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks this time go out to uh, S. Miles Lewis for including the Saucer Life in the Anomaly Radio lineup. Check out AnomalyRadio.com for a great selection of streaming paranormal and conspiratorial programming. Thanks also to Tim Benal, who had me on Benal of America last week to talk about the show and numerous other topics. You can check it out at BenalofAmerica.com. That's B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America all one word, dot com. You can follow along with us at saucerlife.wordpress.com and on Twitter at saucerlife, or you can email us at thesaucerlife, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love your feedback. Go ahead and get in touch. If you could find your way to rate or review us on iTunes, Google Play, anywhere else, that'd be great. Sharing and retweeting are also much appreciated. Encounter 201 featured Nelson Sanat as the voice of O.H. Krill and is a Chizo Media production. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.